0: It's hour two of the afternoon show. I'm Than Bennett in for Bill today. And um, I I love it when God echoes. I I don't know if you've heard that uh, expression before, but I wrote a chapter in one of my books actually about the echoes of God and how when God is echoing, Sometimes it's through whispers. Sometimes it sounds more like thunder. But when he is speaking a repetitive theme into your life, then he's probably trying to get your attention. Uh, Jesus did this constantly. He would say something, and then he would say it again right behind that, maybe maybe from a slightly different perspective. But he did it to impress upon us just in, just how important that message was. And We have some echoing happening today at the afternoon show, and I'm so grateful for it. Last hour, we heard from Pastor Vermon Pierre about the amazing covenant marriage-like relationship between God and His church and how we can embody that in our lives and in our relationship with other people this hour. I am really thrilled, really excited to have Dr. Gary Lovejoy on to build on that conversation by exploring some of the marriage relationships that we find specifically in the pages of scripture. Dr. Lovejoy has a brand new book out that we're going to be drawing from. It is called Marriages in the Bible, What Do They Tell Us? I I know you're going to be uh, really blessed by the conversation, by the book, by the content with Dr. Lovejoy. And I spent some time in this book yesterday, and I have been looking forward to hearing him expound on it since doing that. And I, I just want to invite you into the conversation, thinking about how this personally applies to you. For for, for those of us who are married, this is going to be pretty easy. It's going to be pretty straightforward, right? How can we apply these lessons in our own marriage? But if you're not married, I want you to remember the last hour and remember that we can still apply many of these principles in our relationships with God and also in the ways that we relate to one another. So, let's do that. Let's think about personal application as we enter the conversation. Uh, let me introduce you to Dr. Lovejoy. We'll get him on the air. And let me start by saying this. If I shared with you an introduction that fully encapsulated all uh, that Dr. Lovejoy has done, we would be out of time to talk to him because he has done so very much. So I'm going I'm to give you just a few li- uh, highlights here. Dr. Gary Lovejoy is a former professor of psychology and religion, and he has more than 40 years of private counseling experience. In addition to his doctorate in psychology, Dr. Lovejoy has a robust portfolio of degrees, including a master's in religious education from Fuller Theological Seminary. He founded the Valley View Counseling Center in 1994, and he has authored five books, including the one that we are going to be drawing from today. Gary and his wife, Sue, live in Oregon, and they have two adult children, dr Lovejoy, I know there is a whole lot more here, and i I welcome and I actually invite you to share any further background that you would like to with us, but I'll stop there for now i'm I'm very grateful that you would give us some of your time today and uh welcome to the afternoon show.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me onto your show. I really appreciate that I look forward to our time of uh, discussing uh marriage it's it's probably the most important relationship we we have on earth so uh, to talk about it and where it can go wrong and where it can go right uh, is important. So, I uh, welcome the opportunity. So, thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you for being here. I enjoyed um, reading through the book. I am looking forward to hearing your commentary on it. Let's let's jump right into it. Um, a moment ago, you probably you heard this. I, I mentioned that the conversation is timely because it builds on the one that we had last hour. We're going to be talking mainly about marriage and specifically marriages from the Bible, drawing also on your many years of, of counseling married couples. But I actually want to start by asking you about a different covenant relationship of yours. You wrote in the acknowledgments section um, of this book about a what you called it a covenant group that you've been a part of for nearly forty years. It's a group of friends that your wife Sue and you have shared life with, and. I think it's a living example of how to walk in covenant relationship with those around us. And by, um, by doing so reflect a little bit of the character of God. And so I wanted to start there. Would you, would you share just a little bit about that group and how you all have impacted each other, I would say over these many years?
1: Well, thank you for asking that question because uh, that group means a great deal to both my wife and I, uh, and having been members for over 40 years together, but we, we meet uh, uh, every other week uh, on Tuesdays and um, uh, for Bible study, uh, for time of fellowship um, and interaction. Uh, the interactions around the word are incredible. We have a great group and uh, all, all of us uh, um, participate fully. And, uh, and then we have once a year, we have a retreat, we go together. Some place that we choose to go within reasonable driving distance, and we spend the weekend together. So we have uh, that fellowship as well. And then we've watched our our children grow up. Uh, we we know each other's children. What and watching our children have their children, and so it's been quite a, an odyssey over the years uh, to to do this. But it's been uh, it's a great way to um, maintain uh, your walk with the Lord. And the reason I say that is because sometimes in, there are seasons in life. Where either you're going through difficulties and struggles of your own, or you're having, difficulty, you may be in between churches. Uh, you know what I sometimes call being an ecclesiastical gypsy, where uh, you're looking for a church and haven't been able to find one. And and so in those in those periods where there's, uh, uh, there's a vulnerability to be dry spiritually, that's where the covenant group was so important because we uh, we were kept close to our walk with the Lord because of each other and the fellowship we shared and, and the challenges that we gave to each other and the prayer that we uh, heard from each other for ourselves and for, and our prayers for them. And, um, and it's priceless, uh, it's, it, you really can't uh, d- duplicate it. And there are very, very few groups that stay together as long as our group is done. Um, that's why I compared it to the Inklings because CS Lewis enjoyed that kind of fellowship albeit was with his um, male colleagues not with his wife their wives but um but they enjoyed a, a lifelong uh, relationship as well and it is so important to be able to establish that because it provides a a kind of a benchmark for your your life in in christ so we've uh, had a great great uh run and we're still meeting together although we've lost one uh passed away recently but but, uh, but otherwise we're doing quite well.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that experience. I just thought it was a great way to set up the content of this book, almost working backwards from this is what covenant relationship looks like when, uh, mm-hmm. it's with others and how it reflects, uh, the covenant relationship of God with us. And then, and then obviously in marriages, I thought it drove that point home. So I appreciated that you start that you started there. I appreciate that. Um, Let's turn to the main content of the book. And let's let's start with this before we get into any of the specific examples from the book. I'm I'm wondering why this book now, and just to, to kind of give context, this book draws lessons that we can learn from a number of marriages in the Bible. But why did you feel compelled to look for specific lessons in these marriages rather than maybe to go the more traditional route that maybe someone of your experience would would normally go, which is focusing on biblical principles, right? Um, obviously, that's still a major part of the message. But what was it that made you decide to zoom in on marriage examples from the Bible specifically?
1: Well, that's a good question. As uh, you might know, as a, as a therapist and working with literally thousands of marriages uh, over the forty years of practice, um, I have read many, many. Uh, Christian books on marriage, and and it dawned on me eventually that as I read them that uh, they had many good principles, and they would draw and uh, buttress their points with various passages of Scripture, but I noticed that none of them actually talked about the actual marriages in the Bible, hmm. and so I decided to go back and examine uh, all the marriages in the Bible, and I discovered that God was quite... Uh, detailed in his description of these marriages, and when I did, I began to realize, oh, God never does anything uh, randomly. He's everything he does with purpose, and so I began to ask myself, why why did he take the time to describe these marriages? Some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them were downright ugly, but why did he take the time to describe these marriages, and I believe that what he was doing was teaching us about marriage itself, because if you look at each marriage, each of them has some gem of understanding about a principle that either works or doesn't work in a marriage. And so he's detailing this. And when you get through all of them, you begin to realize it's like a mosaic where, uh, or a puzzle where each piece has information about the marriage. You put it together. And at the end, last chapter, I, I bring it all together. It forms a beautiful uh as they say mosaic or shall we say a blueprint uh, of what constitutes a happy marriage and so uh so when you look at that it's pretty remarkable and um and i and i have always believed that if you're going to understand how god sees marriage then maybe we need to read what he says about marriage directly how he describes marriages because when he does he describes them with a, a very clear purpose and by detailing things. And like I said, it's not just the principles that work. It's also the things that don't work, the things that explode a relationship uh, prematurely and end in divorce. And uh, uh, and there are shared divorces in the Bible as well. So uh, it, it is extremely revelatory, I believe, in terms of what God's heart is for marriage. And after all, he uh, he is the one that stated that marriage is sacred, that uh what man is, uh, if God has joined together, man should not put asunder. And uh, in Matthew nineteen, when he writes that, and and he's saying, basically saying, uh, this is a sacred institution, and here's what I want you to know about it, so that you can, you can conduct it in a way that is honoring to God and a blessing to each other.
0: It's so good, uh, and I, I love that final chapter that you you mentioned, Doctor Lovejoy, where you get really. Uh, deep into application. How does this look as we walk out our own marriages and as we interact with those around us? So I want to get to that conversation if we have time. We are going to take a short break. After the break, I want to ask you about the humility of happiness. And then I want to dig into some of these categories of marriages. Uh, Just for for the listener, there, there are six categories that Dr. Lovejoy talks about. He talks about patriarchal marriages, heartless marriages, problem-centered marriages, tender marriages, maturing marriages, and righteous marriages. We're going to walk through each of those categories, and we're going to glean what we can from uh, how to apply the lessons from these biblical uh, marriages to our own marriages and to our own Live. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. I'm Than Bennett sitting in for Bill Arnold today on the afternoon show. My guest is Dr. Gary Lovejoy, and the book that we are drawing from is Marriages in the Bible What Do They Tell Us? We will be back with more conversation right after this.
1: This is Susie Larson, host of Susie Larson Live. You know, for 75 years, God has been changing lives through Faith Radio. To celebrate, you could win one of the 75 Faith Radio birthday boxes filled with Brant Hansen's new book, Life is Hard, God is Good, Let's Dance, and a new Faith Radio t-shirt and some other fun things to help you grow and commemorate this important birthday. You are an important part of the family. And on this special birthday, you get the presents. You can enter to win yours at MyFaithRadio.com. Dot com. That's MyFaithRadio.com.
0: Talking about marriages today on The Afternoon Show with Bill Arnold. I'm Than Bennett sitting in for Bill today. My guest is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. He's the author of Marriages in the Bible. What did they tell us? And we're going to jump right back into the content. But if you have a question for Dr. Lovejoy, we're going to try to get to those a little bit later in the broadcast. You can text that in to 877-877. 933 2484. Again, it's 877 933 2484. Dr. Lovejoy, I want to ask about the humility of happiness. The the, the book singles out, I, th- I think it's 16 marriages from the Bible, and we're not going to be able to talk about all of them. I do want to spend some time in each of the six types of marriage that you cover, and then maybe invite you to pull some illustrations out of, out of the marriages that are underneath those headings. But I want to ask you first about the humility of of happiness, and I I love this. You write that it is critical to recognize our imperfections without lapsing into self-loathing. So lay a foundation for us about the humility of happiness and dealing with the imperfections that we find both in ourselves and in our spouse. Lay, Lay that foundation for us.
1: Yes, uh, you know, from one of the things I have found from my years of experience in counseling is that one of the greatest uh, impediments to a happy marriage is low self esteem, where people um, uh, grapple with self hatred. And one thing that is interesting about self uh, low self esteem is that it turns a person's attention inward. We're already naturally selfish beings. Uh, That's uh, part of our sin nature. But then when we have low self-esteem, we tend to look inward. We, we're constantly evaluating, is this person like me? Uh, am I coming across all right? Do they, am I, uh, I plagating them? Are they pleased? Are they impressed? Are they whatever? And um, uh, we're constantly talking about, in our internal narratives, about ourselves and how we're coming across. And we also evaluate our worth by uh, what other people think. And we often, and oftentimes, I find when I'm working with different spouses, that there's just very, uh, they feel very unlovable and and worthless. And uh, one of the things from the beginning, our own lovability has been linked uh, not to what others people think, but to being created in the image of God. You know, to deny our own lovability is to deny this truth. To repudiate our own person is to respect the nature. Uh, uh, I mean, to really actually reject the nature of his. Uh, and you, if you think about that for a moment, you find that God uh, is love. He's not just being loving. In First John chapter 4, it says that that God is the embodiment of love. He is love. He's not just loving. And, um, and that means that uh, he cannot create anything in his own image spiritually that is not unlovable, or otherwise he violates his own character. It's my I, I draw an analogy of this to, uh, like, say, for example, when you had your first child, did you sit around thinking about you and your wife sitting, thinking, well, do we, we're going to have a monkey or we're going to have a <laughs> squirrel or we're going to have a possum? Of course not. You said you knew you were going to have a baby. Why? Because you can only produce that which is in your own physical image. And in the same uh, analogous way, we think in terms of God's creating us and his spiritual image that, uh, that therefore, uh, because he is love, we are lovable. That doesn't mean all of our acts and behavior aren't lovable. They're not. they're sinful, but, but our person is lovable. And that's, that was confirmed in the cross. that God thought us so worthy of that sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of his son on the cross. That's the greatest statement of, of our worth to him that can possibly be made. And, um, and so when we insist on believing ourselves to be unlovable and, and worthless, we are seduced by a lie. And caught in this trap, we reject even logic because personal experience usually has uh, convinced us that nothing outside our own subjective reality can be trusted. And um, and so uh, we end up um, uh, rejecting ourselves. And I, I remember uh, there's a statement made by A.W. Tozer, which I really love. And he said... He, he said this, God never thinks any bad thoughts about anybody and he never had bad thoughts about anybody. Hmm. And of course, Tozer was talking about God's thoughts about the person, not the sinful behavior. Uh, but uh, Christians, nevertheless, cannot imagine that God doesn't feel negatively about them. They're convinced that even if, if God's benevolence is true in principle, uh, they're the exception. And I think that um, uh, this coalesces with the same idea that instead of thinking less of ourselves, the objective is to think of ourselves less. Hmm. And so that that frees us up to reach out to our neighbors, not self-consciously as if to impress them, but humbly as to serve them. Because humility involves a sense of worth affirmed in Christ and a sense of adequacy empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it includes an attitude of of gratefulness that Christ covered the cost of our sin and of modesty in how we see our own importance. But it includes and incorporates the whole sense of worth and a sense of adequacy, which is so important because I find when I'm working with uh, 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 spouses in a relationship that men most struggle with issues of adequacy. Women most uh, commonly struggle with feelings of loneliness and worthlessness. Hmm. And um, and so, uh, and, and what happens is when the woman feels like she's neglected by her husband, then she feels that just reinforces her feelings of being unloved and worthless. And therefore she gets, she becomes more and more agitated in her own uh, feelings of self-loathing. And there she or she's more likely to react in negative ways to her husband. And when she begins to criticize him, then he, Feels a lack of respect, and it goes right to the heart of his uh, sense of inadequacy, and uh, so the two are actually uh, are actually injuring the very core of who each is and what they're struggling with, and so um, uh, so the whole nature of humility. And I actually make a statement about this, which I think is uh, that a lot of people have uh raise their eyebrows sometimes but i say, without self-esteem without feeling uh good about who you are in christ you do not have the ability to be humble hmm. humility depends on it because you don't if you don't understand your love, and worth your identity will be badly distorted you see in in psalm 46 10 we're told be still and know that i am god and the question is why did he ask that why why did he say, take time out from your busy schedule? Be still for a moment. Stop for a second and think about, I am God. I am your God. He says, why? Uh, well, because we, as, by cultivating our time with God, he is the wellspring of a believer's identity formation. It's in our relationship with him that we're confronted with three important truths about ourselves. First, the persistence of our sin nature. Uh, secondly, our inherent lovability in Him, and thirdly, our essential worth by His sacrifice—all these can become our daily reality. And as we meditate on those, we begin to realize that every time I put myself down in my internal narrative, I am doing exactly what God has asked me not to do, and that is to devalue what He has created. And so, um, so that when I realize that, I begin to uh, to accept who I am. As beloved by God, and uh, and that I and that He has given me the adequacy to whatever strength He has given me to joy for to His glory, then I am fulfilling His purpose in me, and then I begin to then I'm able to look outward without always constantly measuring everything by how other people think about me, and so now I'm able to reach out to my spouse and give up fully of myself, and that's what happens in marriages that go sour. Is they don't give fully of themselves, they're always holding something back because they are always worried that uh, something is going to happen that uh, shows that they have lower value than, uh, than uh, they have uh, pretended to have.
0: Dr. Lovejoy, I appreciate that so much. I, I write a newsletter called The Equipped, and this week, I wrote about what I coined imaginativity. It was sort of a, a it was a mistaken word that my daughter used when she was trying to say that she has imagination and creativity, and I really wrote from that same concept that you 're talking about that God placed unique characteristics, unique creativity, unique imagination in each of us. That we might uh, that we might uh, reach others in a unique way, he did that intentionally, and this world so often tries to wring uh, uh, the courage out of us to express that uniqueness that God has placed into us so i I love the fact that you started there it. it really it really does take humility to embrace how God has made us, even when it's not going to be understood by everyone if we do it to the glory of God and for the benefit of reaching other people for Jesus Christ, then that is when uh, he can really do work through us. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate you you digging a layer deeper on that. Let's, let's jump into some of these categories of biblical marriages. Now you, you break these down into six different categories. And I want to spend just a moment on each of these in the next couple of segments. The first one is patriarchal marriages. And you write about Abraham and Sarah, you write about Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah. And so as I was, as I was reading these, I was thinking, well, you know, we often hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we are hearing about the marriages of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, um, you categorize those three together. Why, why is that? And what are we to learn from them?
1: Well, they're all within, uh, a family relationship, uh, with each other. Um, and I think, uh, uh one of the things that, uh, uh, that you pull out of these relationships are problems that are quite, even though these marriages occurred thousands of years ago, they're, they demonst- they're still relationships between two human beings, beloved of God, and, and yet they've gone off course uh, oftentimes. And so we can relate them today. For example, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was a very complex man. When it came to his faith, he was bold and a risk taker excellence. I mean, he took his family and headed into the land of Canaan for which he knew nothing and didn't know what the dangers are or whatever, but God had commanded him and he went. And so it repeatedly shows the power of his faith. However, when it came to domestic issues, it was a very different story. Um, Not once, but twice he betrayed his wife by saying, telling uh, first uh, the Pharaoh and then King Abimelech that his wife, who was apparently quite uh, attractive, said, uh, here, take her, she's my sister, not my wife. And uh, because he feared for his own life. Now, it it doesn't mention what Sarah was feeling at the time. uh, And you think, well, how does it feel when your husband's willing to give you away to of the hat just to spare his own life? Uh, Where does the sacrifice come in? And, uh, but you see what happens, what she was feeling later on. Because later on, uh, when Hagar, Uh, had Eshmael she was constantly taunting Sarah over and over and over for months and months on end and uh and Abraham you knew Abraham knew this was going on it was right under his nose but the fight between these two women was not going to be his fight so he just steered away from it well finally Sarah had had enough and she goes to Abraham and is one of the angriest interactions in all the Bible between Sarah and Abraham, she confronts him, and she basically says, you're the problem, and you do something about it. Now, she knows that he knew, and he was not doing nothing. And what was his response? It was a classic pilot response. He kind of why, washed his hands of the whole thing. And said, well, you do with her what you will. Well, of course, she she was already angry toward her, so she began to mistreat her badly, abusing her, so much so that, that uh uh, that Hagar had to run for her life, taking her child, and so Abraham had chasing after her. He could have saved all that problem if he had just gone and taken the leadership in that, in that in that issue and say and told uh, told Hagar to stop, cease and desist. And she would have she because of the nature of the, the way those relationships were structured, she would have definitely listened to him. But he had never said anything, and so it's a curious mix of powerful faith. With a, a, a certain domestic cowardice that existed mm-hmm. with Abraham, so you see both his strengths and his weaknesses displayed in Scripture. There, the uh, of the other ones, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just mention because I know we're limited in time. Just uh, Jacob and Leah was probably the saddest relationship in all mm-hmm. the Bible, because Leah was betrayed by her own father, Laban. Uh, Jacob had been sent by by his mother to. Uh, to her relatives uh, to the north, uh, which Laban was her brother, and and uh, and so Jacob worked for him for seven years for Rachel because he fell in love with Rachel almost immediately. And he loved her so much he worked for seven years. I don't know how many people work that long for <laughs> for uh, uh, getting your wedding date set, but but he did. And after seven years, Laban switched the uh, switched the women and and gave him Leah instead of uh, instead of Rachel and said, you have to work another seven years for Rachel. And so Leah was uh, pawned off on to Jacob, who never really loved her. And while he was cordial with her, he was kind to her, he never loved her. And so Leah was was committed to a relationship, to a marriage, that was basically loveless. And in fact, the sad, where you read about it, how her, desperation had reached such levels is that she was uh, able to have children right away. Rachel was not. She was at first barren, So she couldn't have children. So here you have a situation where Leah had babies, but no love. And Rachel had love and no babies. And, um, and so in that situation, Leah would have preferred to be in Rachel's place. She wanted love more than she wanted babies. She started having, but when she had babies, she was hoping that having them would ingratiate uh, Jacob to her and that he might begin to love her. See, she was using that birth, uh, the the birth of children, to perhaps attain his affection. But in time, she began to realize that that was a hopeless endeavor and that his affections would always go to Rachel. And so so it's an incredibly sad relationship, but... uh, but it's an also a a, a, a a story about the strength of a woman who faces a life without love, and yet God rewarded her because it was through through uh, uh, through Leah that uh, Judah was born, and Judah became the head of the twelve tribes of Israel, and it's out of the tribe of Judah that the Messiah came. So, uh, so he eventually rewarded her stalwart faith and her willingness to stay stay the course even though it was a loveless course but it was a sad one for her
0: Dr. Lovejoy, we're going to take a short break. After the break, I want to ask you about heartless marriages, which is the next category in the book. The book is Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? The author is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. He's my guest today on the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. I'm Than Bennett sitting in for Bill today, and we will be back with more right after this. talking about marriages today on the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. I'm Thane Bennett in for Bill. My guest is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. Uh, Gary writes this in his new book. He writes, a healthy marriage, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and physically is but another way of describing God's perfect design for discovering the happiness of companionship in the present world and for preparing us for the peace and contentment in the world to come. I love that. Uh, I do want to talk about a couple more categories. There are six categories of marriages that Dr. Lovejoy outlines in the Bible. We may not get to all of them, but I want to talk next about uh, heartless marriages. And Dr. Lovejoy, you highlight Nabal and uh, Abigail, David and Michael, and Ahab and Jezebel. What should we be learning from these heartless marriages, and obviously I know you can't answer this question in, you know, a sweeping fashion for specific situations, but I'm interested to hear, what, what do you say to the Jesus follower who finds themselves in a heartless marriage?
1: Well, yes, I think uh, uh, oftentimes people do find themselves in, in such a marriage, and the uh, heartless marriage is essentially a marriage in which uh, there is so much conflict between each other that any sense of true love any sense of affection, of, of connection has been destroyed. And so it's hollowed out the relationship. And for whatever reason, they may stay together uh, in a kind of living divorce, uh, or they may, in fact, uh, divorce. Uh, but, uh, and in fact, uh, when we were talking about Abraham and Sarah, that their, the pr- problem that they had was one of protection. And when a husband does not protect his wife, that creates major problems in relationships. And I've run into that. Numerous times in my own counseling, and it often and it can very easily lead to a divorce because then, wife well, feel uh, discarded and unloved, and this was the case with uh, David and Michael in the heartless marriage. Uh, Michael was already sensitized uh, to a feeling of loneliness and loss. She had married and was extraordinarily in love with David, and. Um, and then David was driven away by her father, Saul. And, uh, and he leaves and he says, take care of things at the home. And he leaves and he doesn't talk to her for years. She never hears from him. He never talked. He never sends a message to her or anything. And so she's feeling abandoned in her relationship. And in the midst of all that, Saul then decides he has actually abandoned her. And so he uh, marries her to somebody else. And, uh, uh, and then David comes back later when he's uh, unified the kingdom and he says, I, I want to have Michael uh, come back. And she was wary of that because she had been loved in the previous relationship. Now she's being brought back into a relationship that she's not sure where she stands. And um, and as they're bringing in the uh, this is when they're uh, bringing the kingdom together and then in the in the, uh, uh, in the form of the, of the covenant being brought to Jerusalem, the capital, and uh and David is doing his dancing and so forth and Micah is standing in the palace uh, quarters living quarters and she's w- looking down watching this display and she becomes uh angry and disgusted by his display apparently he was dancing pretty wildly and um uh and so uh and he, she comes from a royal family and so there were certain protocols and that he wasn't following according to her so when he arrived back to the royal apartment after the, the ark had been placed in its in its uh, position in the temple, then he he um, uh, walks in, and the first thing she says is, "Well, aren't you the aren't you the lascivious person you know out there dancing mm-hmm. like crazy and so forth?" And he immediately blew his top, and uh, and they had a battle royal, a, a huge argument, and they. They were showing how how marriages cannot usually survive when you start hitting below the belt. When you start making out ad, ad hominem attacks against the person, you uh, belittle them, you uh, you uh, mock them, you uh, and 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 you generally treat them as if they are worthless. Then um, then you're not going to get a, a good result, and that's what happened. They had a. a a, a a verbal brawl with each other essentially and, and david hit back below the belt as well i mean he said look at i'm the king not your father your father's gone well she was still she was still mourning the loss of her father and he 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 takes that specifically her pain and drives it right down her throat and uh so the two of them it says at the end is a simple sentence they never saw each other again after that hmm. in other words she remained in his harem, but she never ever was seen by him again they were they relationship ended up in a permanent divorce, a uh, living divorce, and as a living divorce, yeah well right. I was
0: just going to say cuz you you're talking about David and Michael I I want to ask you about the other marriage with David that that you mentioned in the book this is in a different section it's in the maturing marriages section but you know the, everybody knows this story it's the one that that starts with adultery and then David tries to cover it up he has Bathsheba's mm-hmm. husband killed to so that he can have Bathsheba and to cover his wrong I mean it's 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 vile vile stuff so as I listen to you talk about David and Michael it makes me think about uh, this other marriage, and you know, God's redemption in the story is overwhelming. But and and I know that my sin is you know just as repugnant to God as David's was. But this is this is a huge crisis, right, for Bathsheba. And on top of all of that, her son dies because of David's sin. And so we, we we've only got a couple of minutes here before we need to go to a break. But while we're on David, I, I want I want to know what we do with this marriage. What do we do with a marriage that starts? like this
1: yeah th- th- that's a very good question um you know this this illustrates i think uh, a, a point about the relationship between david and god um god refers to Dave, king david as a man after my own heart and you think how can he be a man from your own heart he engineered the death of her of that husband she had, he had adultery he did all these terrible things uh, why how can he possibly uh, be a man of his own heart. And the reason that he says that is because David, when he was finally confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin, he didn't, uh, he didn't go into a bluster and try to, uh, to, uh, uh, to defend himself uh, or create some sort of a story, cover story to, to uh, hide the fact of what he had done. Instead, he broke down and he said, I have sinned and I am guilty. And Nathan looked at him and said, uh, "He said, and that at that point he he was um, he was remorseful, and he was uh, and he's repentant. But that wasn't enough. When when there's a violation like this, it needs to be more than just remorse and repentance. It needs to be contrition. And contrition is accepting the consequences of your behavior. And Nathan had said to David, as a result of what you've done." that uh, death will hang over the house of David, and indeed it did. He lost three of his sons and uh, to violence. and he had to over the, the most moving of which is his uh, mourning over the loss of Absalom, who rebelled against him. But all these things happened as a consequence of sin. So there were there were certain consequences of his sin. And at one point it, uh, when he was fleeing from Absalom, he said, somebody said, uh, don't uh, you know, somebody was said." Uh, uh, telling uh, David, uh, you know, you're, you're not a legitimate king's order. Uh, and his uh, army captain said, can I go over and just kill this guy? He says, no, that's God's word to me. And there was mm-hmm. what he was saying was, I have sinned. And he was remembering that uh, there were consequences to my sin. So David was contrite. And that's mm-hmm. critical. And that's critical whenever there's an infidelity. That uh, it's not just remorseful. Remorseful saying, I'm sorry what saying, I'm sorry about what I did. Uh, repentance is changing your behavior so you don't do that again. But contrition is accepting the consequences of that behavior. And sometimes, one of the consequences of, of, of infidelity today is that, uh, let's say, a man has a, an affair with a uh, with a woman, and uh, and I don't, I've dealt with many, many cases like this, and uh, and uh, and he may be remorseful, and he may be uh, even repentant. But when she starts in on asking him every question of every, they, they almost have a, just a, you know, they just have an obsession with wanting to know every detail. It's very common. And, uh, and oftentimes, uh, uh, he'll, he'll say something like, well, uh, you know, we've already, I've already ended the relationship. And why are we keep talking about this? This is in the past. Let's let it go and let's move on. That tells you that he's not contrite. Because contrition is accepting the consequence, which is the unpleasant process of having to discuss what you've done and how ugly it is. And you may have
0: to- Dr. Lovejoy, we we have to go to a break. I so appreciate contrition and forgiveness, so central here. When we come back after the break, I want to ask you about Aquila and uh, Priscilla specifically. My guest is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. The book is Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? And we'll be back with more right after this. Receive a daily email featuring a scripture graphic. Sign up for this first of the day email at myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the afternoon show. Than Bennett in for Bill today. My guest is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. I have one more segment with him. Uh, Dr. Lovejoy, I want to ask you about Aquila and Priscilla. This is a marriage that fascinates me. Uh, but before we do that, I want to ask a question. We were talking to the break a little bit about. Uh, What do we do when we encounter a couple in a toxic relationship? uh, Talk us through some of your experience with this. How how do we get over that when we find ourselves in a bind? What what are the steps to take? And and maybe give us an example of of how to proceed from that place.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of couples come in and they are basically problem-centered. They are obsessed with their complaints. Uh, but they're not solution focused. And the only way you bring about change is to be solution focused. And part of the problem is that they are just problem centered and they rehash things over and over again. In fact, in what uh, sometimes we call um, uh, active rehearsal, they just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. But it's important that in personal change uh, that uh, you recognize that you cannot control the other person. The only person you have control over is yourself. So if you want to initiate change in a relationship, you, you start with yourself. And uh, and most oftentimes we want to start with the other person because we, we blame them. Um, and in the process, we want to assume uh, the best about each other, which includes assuming innocent until proven guilty. But um, but oftentimes people get into such ruts, they're stuck. And um, and one way to keep marriage fresh and, and uh and is doing something different of changing up and making a change. For example, a, a couple came in to see me and uh, well, actually just the wife does, and this is often the case, the wife comes in, she's the kind of the scout to see it and, and uh, before her <laughs> husband comes in, but she, she came in and she said, she in their relationship, as many do, they wait until their relationship is on the brink of divorce. And she came in and she said, I just can't take this anymore. And she said, I said, what, what's happening? And she says, well, she says, we've been engaging in knockdown dragout battles, fights uh, every single night for five years. I marveled at her, um, at her ability to, to be hanging, for so the two of them to still be hanging in there after five years of constant battles. And I said, well, what happens? And she said, well, she says, he hates his job. And he, But he doesn't take any initiative to change anything. He just hates his job. And he comes home and he takes it out on me. He just walks in the door and he just starts in on me. He has no respect for me at all. And he just lights into me. And I said, well, well what do you do? And, and she then had a kind of twinkle in her eyes. She says, well, I'm not, I'm no, uh, I'm no wallflower. I will fight back. And so I fight back and I and I yell. And then we have screening matches and we go, the screen matches may go as long as an hour. And I said, "You've been doing this for five years." Yes, five years, every night, almost every night for five years. And I said, "I said, first of all, congratulations on, on your, on your ability to, to, uh, to hang in there." Then I said, "I said, uh, well, I think one of the problems." I said, "What, what do you do? What happens? What does he do?" And she described exactly what he does, what she expected me to do. And I said, "What does he expect you to do?" Oh, she said, "She, he expects a, a lot of blowback. A lot of blowback." I've given it to him a lot over the years. I said, well, I said, one of the problems you have is that your relationship is too predictable. I use predictable because it's a lot, uh, it's not a uh, emotionally loaded word. And so I said, it's too predictable. And she says, what do you mean? I said, well, I want you to try something. I said, what I want you to do is I want you on the way home is to get a water pistol and fill it with water. And uh, the next time he comes home and he lights into you like that, instead of arguing with him like you usually do, I want you to pull out your, uh, reaching your purse, pull out your water pistol, give him a shot between the eyes and run off giggling. Do you think you can do that? And she said, yeah, I think I can. You think that's different than you usually do? Oh, <laughs> a lot different. And I said, okay, well then give it a try and see what happens. And so she was gone, two, she came back two weeks later and she said, my husband is out in the waiting room. She, he wants to come in, but I want to share with you what happened. And I said, yes, what did happen? Because she was radiant. This point. And she said, Well, well, I did what she said. And she went home and I got uh, uh, this quirt gun and I filled it with water. The first time he came home, boy, he was in for bear. And instead of arguing, though, I did exactly what he said. I turned around, gave him a shot of water. And ran out of the room giggling. Except I did one thing you didn't suggest, and I said I had to see what he was, how he was reacting. And so I looked over my shoulder, and he was standing there with this stunned look on his face, with water dripping off his mouth with the look of "What is that all about?" You know. But it, he said, "She said, but it ended the argument. That's for sure." so no, "That was good." And so then he, she said, "The next night, the same thing happened again. And on the third night, she again it happened. But he, she reached in to get her pistol, and She turned around to." to shoot him with water, and she was looking down the barrel of his squirt gun. <laughs> and so they squirted each other, and what ensued was an old-fashioned water gun fight running through the house like two teenagers, shooting each other with water until they were soaking wet and fell down on the floor in the living room, laughing their heads off. And, uh, and they looked at each other, and suddenly they got serious, and they, they said this is the first time we have laughed in our relationship in five years. Hmm. And, and it's what they missed the most because they loved, they loved to have fun with each other. And the fun was all gone. And that, and that change initiated a huge change. And the husband came in and we, and we worked for six months together and they had a magnificent relationship when they finished. But the, the point was that it wasn't the gun, the water gun that made the difference. It was the fact that they were doing something different that broke up the pattern that was so toxic to their marriage. And that's what got them to thinking differently about their marriage. It stimulated change, change begets change. And uh, and they began to work on their relationship and they began to discover that their relationship wasn't dead after all. And, yes. and so it's a beautiful picture of how you can begin to make change uh, by simply focusing on what you can do and do something different. Uh, I, I remember one man, I gave that uh, advice to, and he, uh, uh, and he um, went and, uh, and, and on his own creativity, recreated their whole first date. That relationship wasn't as, uh, wasn't as combative. What was wrong with that relationship was boring. They, were, they had become clones of each other. That's what sometimes couples will do. They will become clones. You ever see yeah. their marriages that have been married maybe 20 years and the child leaves home and then they've divorced. And you wonder, what, why are they divorcing now after 20 years? that's because they never really worked on their relationship with each other they poured all their energies into their child and so um
0: Uh, Dr. Lovejoy, we're just about out of time, but I so appreciate that. We don't have time to talk about Aquila and Priscilla, but I like your example better because what I wanted to ask you about them, you wrote about them that they mastered the art of friendship in marriage with each willing to give more than they received. And so your example illustrated that beautifully. We're just about out of time, but I'm so grateful that you gave us so much of your time today. Uh, Thank you for being on the afternoon show with us.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it, Dan.
0: The the book is marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? The author is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. You can pick your copy up wherever books are sold. Highly encourage you to do it. There are a number of other biblical marriages in the book that I wanted to have time for. I encourage you to get the book, read the book, draw from these marriages, apply them to your own marriages. Also, Pastor Vermon Pierre in the last hour, his book is Dearly Beloved: How God's love for His church deepens our love for each other, and that's the Thought I want to leave you with today, uh, the, the, the the relationship with God is like a marriage. We, the, the church is God's bride, but we can reflect that in the way that we relate to others. I'm Than Bennett. It's been great sitting in for Bill Arnold today on the afternoon show. Have a great weekend! Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.